And the reason I wanted to do this series is because I firmly believe that God has a good work for every single one of you who are listening to me talk today. He has a, he has a good work for you to do. There is something that God has called all of us to do. And what I want you to have over the next several weeks is I want you to have some expectation because here's what happens generally with Christians. We lower our expectation in what God can do or wants to do through our life. And so what do we do? We live the treadmill Christian life where we just do good, we go to church, we act good, but that's it. But is it possible that God has something more for you? That's the question that we have to embrace as we come to this good work. I believe that God wants to stir in our spirits today and throughout the next several weeks. He wants to stir in our spirits that he wants to do more in you. And because of that, he wants to do more through you. In fact, maybe more than you ever believed he could do in or through your life. And here's why. Because God specializes in ordinary people. I look at the Bible and we look at those characters and go, wow, those are pretty remarkable people in the Bible that God used. I mean, look at David and, and look at Peter and, and look at all these people. But guess what? They were ordinary people that God tapped on the shoulder and said, I have something I want you to do. All I need you to do is be willing and be obedient to me. And the Holy Spirit will take care of the rest. So we look throughout the Bible, there are very ordinary people that God uses. So if you're here trying to say, Kelly, this is a great message, but I am so ordinary. I'm so unusable to God. I don't have any skill sets. I don't have anything to offer God's mission. Wrong, okay? You do, because you're an ordinary person. If you were born the ordinary way, which most of us probably were, uh, then you are an ordinary person. And God delights in using ordinary people for his purposes. And here's what I believe. Some of you, deep down inside, you know, and this is what you get frustrated with, especially in the Christian faith, because you know God has something more for you. And while you sit and wait, you get frustrated. But I'm going to challenge you today with a different way of looking at what, what I believe God may have for you to do. But some of you know you're created by God to do something eternal, something that matters, something will even outlast you. Because we look back at heroes of the faith, and we call them that because they did something that outlasted them and made an eternal difference. What is it that God would want to do through you that makes an eternal difference? But I want you to be warned. When we talk about a message like this, here's something you have to know. That when God uses you, it always comes with a price. There is a price that you will pay when God uses you. It's going to cost you some sacrifice. It's going to cost you some failure. How many have ever failed at doing something? None. Only half of us have failed. So maybe this isn't an ordinary group of people. No, believe it or not, we all fail. It's going to cost failure. It's going to cost maybe rejection, discouragement, pain, maybe even some heartache, some loneliness, and some doubts. But when your sacrifice impacts the life of others and gives glory to God, it's worth the sacrifice. I mean, think about Jesus. Was that sacrifice on the cross worth it? I don't know. Some of you don't believe that. Was it worth it? Yes. At what great cost to Jesus? His life. But it glorified God and it saved the world. You may not feel exceptionally gifted right now or talented, but you're the exact kind of person that God wants to use. And here's why. We're going to look at a very ordinary guy in the Old Testament. I'm sure you've heard of his name. He's Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah was a very ordinary guy in the Old Testament. What did Nehemiah have to offer God? Because Nehemiah was not a priest. Nehemiah was not a prophet. Nehemiah was not a preacher. He wasn't an evangelist. He was an ordinary guy who worked for the king of a nation that he wasn't part of. Nehemiah was a Jew, and during this story, he was living in Babylon under the rule of a king who is not a Jewish king. So it would seem like all the odds would be against Nehemiah, and yet God uses him. In fact, what did he do? Let's look at it. If you have your Bible app open, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, it says this. So they, which is Nehemiah and some people he got with him, which we're going to talk about that in future messages. So they began this good work. So if you have faith this morning and into this next several weeks that God might speak into your life and stir you to something more, a good work, here's what I challenge you to do. I want you just to raise a hand. If you believe God has something more for you to do, I know this is, this is like a response on the front end, but if you believe God has something more for you to do, I want you to raise a hand. So I'm going to pray right now for each of us to have a hand raised that God would open our hearts to today's message. Because here's what happens. You listen to me talk, you walk away from here, and nothing changes. Today is going to be different. You're going to listen, you're going to walk away from here empowered to begin to see what God wants to do through you. If you will trust that he can do that, let's raise our hands and pray. Father, I thank you now for each person who's raising their hand by faith saying, I believe God that you wanna use me, an ordinary person, to do something only you can do in me and through me. So God, I commit to you this morning to listen for your leading to fill the burdens that you've placed in my heart of the needs around me and to move into action by your power. So I believe for that. I, I raise my own expectation to not be ordinary from this day on, but rather to seek the extraordinary you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So to kick off this series today, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about when you can't take it anymore. When you can't take it anymore. There's a couple of ways we're going to look at this this morning. One of those, some of you are like, I can't take this way of living my Christian life anymore. It's very vanilla and I'm tired of it. So what happens when we can't take that anymore? The second part of this is when you see something that breaks your heart and you know you got to do something, it's when you can't take it anymore, what do you do? All right, so that's what we're going to talk about here, hopefully in the next two hours. All right, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to be motivated today by, by Nehemiah, just an ordinary guy who heard something that broke his heart. And when he heard this news that broke his heart, he said, I've got to do something about it. He wasn't going to do what most Americans do, which is this. I'm going to wait and watch to see somebody else do something. You ever notice that? You ever notice that sometimes you have a stranded motor vehicle from the side of the road? Maybe they're even stalled out in the turn lane. And I've sat and watched cars go by. And it's like, seriously, whatever happened? To, and you know, what, you know what happens? When one person stops and get out and starts to help, it creates a chain reaction of people who stop and get out and help. So we're going to stop saying, well, I'm going to wait for somebody else to do something about this. When God puts a burden in your heart, you respond to it. 
That's what we're going to talk about today. He didn't settle saying, well, somebody should do something about this, or, or the government should do something about this, or the pastor should do something about this, or the church should do. No. When God puts a burden in our heart, he's saying, I want you to do something about this. So let's look at it. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. We see that he was compelled, compelled to do something around him. Nehemiah 1, 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. We're going to pause there. So Nehemiah, who was he? Ordinary guy. He was a layman. As we'll see in, the, in, the, in a minute here, he was cupbearer to the king. So the cupbearer to the great king Artaxerxes who ruled Persia, from 464 to 423 BC. So the story happened a long time ago, but don't let that don't let that confuse you or don't let that say, well, that was then, this is now. Okay. But he was cupbearer to the king, and it was much more than a butler. A cupbearer began uh, became somebody who was very trusted by the king. Because the cupbearer's job was to bring the king his beverage, but before the king drank it, the cupbearer drank it. Now, why would that be important? Because back in those days, if you wanted to kill the king, the primary way you would try to do it is poison him. And a lot of the kings, as you hear stories like Julius Caesar and others, they were killed by the people who were what? Closest to them. There was always somebody waiting to be the next king, usually in the shadows of the current king. So a cupbearer would drink the beverage before the king would. So if the cupbearer drank and it was poisoned, his job is pretty short-lived. Uh, that's what he was. So he's a very trusted person. So the king had trusted Nehemiah, which tells me there's an aspect of which God wants us to be trustworthy people. He was a person of integrity. I believe God wants us to be that if he's going to use us. But other than that, he was very much an ordinary person. And what had happened is, is uh, as he heard this news, we, we hear him talk about this remnant that had been in Jerusalem. So let me just give you some brief Bible history so we all know what happened. You recall that in the Old Testament, the people of Israel disobeyed God. And because of that, the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled. And then eventually, about 150-ish years later, the southern kingdom of Judah was also exiled to Babylon. At that point, the Babylonian kings ruled, and then Persia came in and took over Babylon, but the Jews were still captive, away from their land, about a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. And when they were taken captive, their city was destroyed. So Jerusalem had a wall around the big city, the wall was torn apart, the temple was burned and destroyed. They were left in shambles, though their culture had been destroyed. And so here's Nehemiah, a thousand miles away from the problem. A thousand miles away from the problem. Some of you kind of go, you know, why, why did he feel like he had to do something? Well, let's continue the story. So somebody brings news to Nehemiah about the condition of Jerusalem and how nothing has been improved, even though people have been returned to improve Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple. There's been a, they kind of stalled out, nothing was happening. So the city was open and vulnerable to whoever would come in. 
They were open for attack. But what we see is that Nehemiah, why didn't God have him in Jerusalem then to do something about it? Why would God talk to Nehemiah who was a thousand miles away and put a burden in his heart to do something? Here's why. Because God has a good work for you to do right now, right where you are. So even though for Nehemiah, the problem was a thousand miles away, God had a good work for him to do right now, right where he is. And this is important for you to hear because I believe God has a good work for you right now, right where you are. Because some say, well, a good work means I got to go to a foreign country. Well, maybe. But there's a good work for you to do right here where you are. And it turned out that that was the case for Nehemiah. By the way, that was the case for Esther who was kind of a contemporary in this Bible history, God had a good work for Esther to do right where she was. So no doubt for Nehemiah, it was an ordinary day. Just like you're having an ordinary day today. But this day, Hanani came and said the news about what was happening back in Jerusalem. And how many know that sometimes all it takes is one small conversation to change your life? And that's what happened for Nehemiah. Hanani comes with this news, and just like large doors, great life events can swing on such small hinges. There are small things that God brings your way to pivot you and to see what he wants to do through you. In fact, it was just another ordinary day when Moses was called by God. Remember what was he doing? He was taking care of sheep, and he was, he felt like his job for God was over, and God called him on a very ordinary day to go deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. It was an ordinary day when David was out tending sheep and the prophet came to anoint the next king and it was David. His life changed that day. It was an ordinary day when Peter, James, and John were just coming back from fishing and Jesus said, hey, come follow me. How many have an ordinary day today, tomorrow, the next? Yeah, all of us experience the ordinary, but how many know that right there on an ordinary day, something can happen. You never know what God has in store for you, even in a common conversation with a friend or a relative, what God might do through you. And verse two says that Nehemiah questioned Hanani about the Jewish remnant. And why would he ask that? Why would he ask about what was going on back home? Here's why. Because some people prefer not to know what's going on. If I'm ignorant, then I don't have to be responsible. I don't want to know what's going on. So some of you try to keep yourself pretty protected from all trouble, because if you know there's something going on that's wrong, well, then you got to do something about it, right? But if I don't know, I can play ignorant. I don't have to care about it. But his fellow Jews were in trouble. He couldn't be ignorant anymore. He knew about it. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? When all you have is a burden in your heart that something has to change. What do you do when a good work needs to be done? So here's three phases to start your good work. If you want to write them down, you can, but they're also available online at our website, albanync.org, at our messages, or on the Bible app. The first one, sit down and cry. That doesn't sound very motivational, Kelly. Now, let's hang with me. Sit down and cry. Let's look at it in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. It says that when I heard these things, this is Nehemiah, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, the very first thing that Nehemiah does 
is what you might end up doing at some point in time in your life. You sit down and you let whatever it is, if it's an injustice around you or something happening that you see in our community, you sit down and it breaks your heart and you cry. In fact, George Bernard Shaw, he wrote a play called The Devil's uh, Disciple. And he says this in the play, the worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. And friends, in America today, we are becoming indifferent to the people around us. And God never planned for it to be that way. When we look around us, we should not look with indifference. We should look to say, what can I do to make a difference in the problems that I see around me? That's what Nehemiah did. He was a thousand miles away from his homeland. He was actually living pretty good, pretty comfortable. Plush job working for the king, right? He got to eat from the king's table. He got to drink what the king was drinking until he dies. But he got to drink what the king was drinking. It was pretty comfortable and plush for him. And we can relate to that, right? Because some of us are so comfortable. We sit in our lazy boy recliners and we watch TV and we see terrible things happen in the world around us. And we go, oh, that's too bad. Oh, that's, oh, that's too bad. Or we scroll through Facebook and watch news headlines. Oh, boy, that's got to be really sad. But we're safely removed from the problem. So all we do is maybe do a frowny face on social media. Oh, frowny face. And then we move on. God is tired of people moving on. If he puts a burden in our heart, he's calling us to sit down, feel it. Let it hit our hearts and cry. Because at this moment, you know what? Nehemiah had a choice. He heard the need. He had a choice. One, he could acknowledge the plight of his people and say, I have got to do something. I've got to, I've got to feel this thing. I've got to see what God wants to do. Or he could have said, too bad for them. Kind of the whole sucks to be you, right? I mean, I'm glad I'm not living there. I'm a thousand miles away from the problem. But he doesn't. He feels it. He lets it get us into his heart and he cries. Not just getting into his head, but it gets into his heart. And it bothered him enough to stir a divine burden and an ache in his soul. Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever seen something around you and you got stirred at a very, not just here at a mental level, but you got stirred at a heart level when you saw it? You have a choice when it hits here. You know what most of us do? We numb it and excuse it away. That's not my problem. I hope somebody does something about that. And we push the snooze button. And then we wonder why God doesn't do anything through me. It's because God keeps plating up opportunities for us and we go, oh, that's too bad. I hope somebody does something about that. And the more that I keep hitting the snooze button, the less sensitive I become to the burdens that God wants to put in mine and your heart. So Nehemiah had a choice. What breaks your heart? What, is a, what burdens you? Maybe for some, it's when you see at-risk children, abuse, foster, that have a lack of education, that have poor skills, and you go, man, I wish their parents would do a better job parenting, <laughs> right? And we feel maybe angst about it, but what is the purpose of that feeling? Or maybe for others, it's homeless teens or, or what's happening in sex trafficking right here in our own valley. 
or maybe it's the filth that you see continue to come across entertainment and media. And so what can I do against such a big, a big problem? Well, you seek God. You let it begin to burden your heart. Maybe some of you feel like burden for teen moms. Maybe it's the addicts, drugs, sex, porn. Maybe it's homelessness. Maybe it's poverty that you see around you in your neighborhood. Maybe it's issues that are on foreign soil like clean water, feeding programs, Bible poverty. All I mean, we can keep going. The unborn, there's so many needs around us if we simply open our eyes. But when does that need begin to touch your heart? That is the question we have to deal with. What breaks my heart? For me, what breaks my heart is when I see kids abused and used and exploited. That breaks my heart. And I could go, well, that, you know, that's too bad. That's too bad that's happening. Or we as a church could lean into that and say, you know what? We need to do something that makes a difference in the lives of kids who find themselves in foster care. And so 10 plus years ago, we started saying, we're going to be involved in making a difference. And we decided to do Royal Family Kids Camp and Foster Parents Night Out to begin to make a difference. But that's my burden. And some of you have joined along with my wife and my burden to do that. But what's your burden? It may not be that. But that was mine. I couldn't just see that and go, oh, too bad. I hope the state does a better job taking care of these kids. God said, no, no, no. You got to do something about it. And by the way, Royal Family Camp started when a guy named Wayne Tesh, who was pastoring a church, kept seeing kids in his community who should be at church camp, but they can't afford it. They're foster kids. And if they came into the traditional church camp setting, they just wouldn't work well. And so he said, what can I do about this, God? And he started the very first Royal Family Kids Camp in 1985 and said, I'm going to make a difference in the lives of foster kids. And it's been happening ever since then. What happens when we get a burden? Let it touch our hearts to the point we sit down and cry and then act about it. See, here's the thing. I don't worry every now and again if I cry about something that breaks my heart. What I worry about is when that doesn't happen. When's the last time you were moved deeply about something around you to the point where it stirred your heart and broke your heart and you could do nothing at that moment except weep? When's the last time that happened for you? Because as followers of Christ, if that's not happening, you should be concerned that we can look around us so blindly and not see the needs here. So what do you do when you can't take it anymore? You sit down and you cry. Secondly, you kneel down to pray. Let's look at it again in verse four. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Here's the thing. If it's big enough to cry about, it's big enough to pray about. So we got to move from crying and say, okay, I'm, I'm burdened. Now what do I do? I pray about it. And I bring it before God who already is aware of the need. But in doing that, it, I pray. And sometimes I hear this. Well, all we can do now, I guess, is pray. Isn't that silly? That should be the very first thing we do is pray and trust God that he wants to do something in you and through you. You might say, well, Kelly, there's just one me. And the burden he's putting in my heart is so big. Yeah, but we just sing about how great our God is. And when I pray and start talking to him, he's, he's got it handled up there. He's just looking for willingness down here. So I pray. 
And if your heart is broken and touched deeply by a need, then sit down and cry and then kneel down and pray. And throughout the book of Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah praying 12 times because he needs God's direction, his wisdom, and his leadership. And we see one of those prayers right here in verse 5 of chapter 1. And in this prayer, Nehemiah confesses his own sin. He confesses the sin of his own people. Sometimes I have to pray, God, forgive me for the way that I've in the past totally ignored you and the needs you bring before me. Forgive me. But he prayed for God's forgiveness of the sin. Let's look at it. Verse 5. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. I think what he was doing was making sure he remembered who he was talking to. So Nehemiah wraps some words around it, that you are the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night. Notice it wasn't just one time. Oh, God, help me. Day and night he prayed. The prayer of the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And of course, that's what happened. But if you return to me and obey my commands, so he's reminding God of the other part of that promise, that even in their brokenness, if they repent and turn to him, even from there, I will gather them, and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today. Notice what he's doing now. He's calling upon the greatness of God, reminding God of all the God stuff that God does. Not that God needs to be reminded, but sometimes we have to be reminded about what God already knows he's going to do. And then he says, now, God, give me success. When's the last time you prayed that? In a God-honoring way. Not like, God, give me success at this game. God, give me success at my job. Give me success. Not that God doesn't care about those things. But when's the last time you prayed, God, give me success with the burden you've just placed in my heart? So he prays for that. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man who was going to be the king. We'll see the story roll out because he says, I was cupbearer to the king. So after he mourned and fasted, he prayed. And he goes to the king and he asks permission. And we see Nehemiah praying lots of times throughout the book. And here's the thing. What you pray about reflects what you believe about God. Let me say that again. What you pray about reflects what you believe about God. So some of you, if your prayers are just bless this food, keep me safe, give me a good day, then you don't really believe in a powerful God. You believe in a convenient genie who wants to give you good stuff. And if that's the only prayers we're praying, give me a good day, be with my kids today, bless them, bless the food, bless, 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 you're not believing in an all-powerful God. You're believing in a bless me, God. And while I believe God wants to bless, I believe he wants to do far more through our prayers. When I ask God to stretch me and use me, and when I pray for the impossible, then I, I'm only doing what I can do, believing in the power of an all-powerful God to stretch me and grow me. 
So he prays. And through prayer, that burden grows. And guess what else happens? The burden grows, but the vision narrows. He begins to see exactly what it is he needs to do. So the burden grows in him, but now all of a sudden he sees a pathway of what it is he's to do. I've got to go to the king. I have to bring this request before my boss, the king. So real prayer does something. It keeps your heart and your head in balance so that your burden doesn't make you impatient and get ahead of God. You ever been ahead of God on something before? I have. I've tried to outrun God to get something done for him, and that's pretty silly. So keeping your head and your heart in balance with the burden in line with God's leading. And as we pray, God tells us what to do, when to do it, how to do it. He gets us people to help us do it. And all of a sudden, we can accomplish then the will of God in his time. So how do you begin the work when you can't take it anymore? You sit down and you cry. Then you kneel and pray. And then once your heart is broken and you've sought the goodness of God, the third thing happens. You stand up and you act. You stand up and act. Some of us, all we've done is become burdened. And some of us have taken the next step. All we've done is prayed. And I'm glad you're taking those two steps. But there are so many Christians who stop there. Oh, I'll pray about that, God. Or I'll pray for you. How many know that that's code word for cop out for Christian? I'm not going to do anything about it. I'll pray about it. Then you might as well just tell me no. I mean, some people really mean that, but a lot of times that becomes the ultimate Christian cop out. Oh, I'll pray about that. And it never comes to our mind again. But we can't just be burdened about it and cry, kneel down and pray. There has to be the next component in God's time, which is we have got to stand up and act. Let's look at it in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 12th year, so shortly after he received this vision, when wine was brought for him, King Artaxerxes, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. Remember, this burden has so weighed on him. He's even now expressing his emotion in front of the king he works for, which, by the way, was a no-no. You don't go into the king's presence looking sad because the king says, I don't want sad people around me. Off with your head. I mean, it's that's plain and simple. You're by the king. It's like, hey, king, how's it going? High five. Great to see you. You're like in cheer mode for the king. But he's sad. So I took the wine, gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And the king's touching on it. Something has deeply touched you. So what does Nehemiah say? I was very much afraid. Why was he afraid? He's in the presence of this king, but he knows who his greater king is. But right now, he's got to deal with this earthly king who could make it or break it right now for his life. May the king live forever, he said. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed. Notice what he did right there. He's right in the, he's in motion of seeing the thing unroll, but he still stops and he prays. He says, I prayed, it right, I prayed right there to the God of heaven. And then I answered the king. I don't think he prayed like this. Oh, God. And when he was in the presence of the king, I think he just did one of those under his breath prayers. Oh, God, please help me. Give me the words to say. 
or give me favor, so you pray. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can go and rebuild it. See, I know this is going to get under the skin of some of you, but this is what I need you to hear. Yes, be burdened and cry. Kneel and pray, but don't stop there. Many of you have stopped right there, and God has not then used you for the thing he wants to do. You might think, well, Kelly, this is like 40 years too late. I should have heard this 40 years ago. Well, you're hearing it today. And last time I checked, there's no retirement plan in the kingdom of God. When he's done with you here, you're six feet under or whatever your choice is of how you're going to leave this place. But there's no retirement plan in God's kingdom. He needs all generations of all people accomplishing his mission if it's going to be accomplished. So you go to your prayer closet, you get burdened, and then at some point God is going to move you to do something. But here's what he say. Well, who am I? Because I'm not the pastor. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not some business guru. I, I'm just an ordinary person. Exactly. And here's the thing. You don't have to be appointed by man if you're called by God. You might be waiting for somebody to say, go do it. Listen, you don't have to be appointed by man if you are called by God. Now, here's the good news. If you're called by God, man's going to confirm that. And they're going to see it and go, wow, God's put a burden on your heart. But your job is not to wait around. If God has called you, that is good enough. And you step into that. And let men figure out what the next step is for you. You don't have to be chosen by people if God prompts your heart, stirs your spirit, gives you a burden. Then you just step into it. And you trust him to act. And then you feel his presence stirring within you. So if it breaks your heart, you got to ask, why is it breaking my heart? Why? Because God wants you to do something. I'm going to wrap it up with this. Many of you have heard of the footprints in the sand, right? How many have that hanging somewhere in your house, footprints in the sand? Wonderful little thing. You can find it in most Christian bookstores. A lot of folks read that and go, oh, that's so awesome. In case you don't know what it is, it, it, it talks about a man who, who dreamed that he saw his lives in terms of walking along a beach with God. And throughout the years, there were times where there were two sets of footprints his and God's, and then there was times when there was just one, and it's that whole, ah, kumbaya moment where it was like, those are the moments that God was carrying me through those difficult times, and that's why we love that poem. Well, I read a blog from a pastor that I follow, and his name is James Emery White, and he had a friend submit to him a revised version of this poem. I'm going to read it for you. It says, one night... I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen, the footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. But then some stranger prints appeared, and I asked the Lord, what have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat, but Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed, you would not grow. The walk of faith, you would not know. So I got tired, I got fed up, and there I dropped you on your butt. <laughs> 
Because in time, there comes, because in life, there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb. When one, one must rise and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. <laughs> Maybe not used to hearing that kind of word in a church setting, but we're outdoors. <laughs> so God said butt prints was okay. For some reason, I don't think we're probably going to see that one hanging from people's house uh, houses and etched on pillows. And but you know what? It it probably should be because it stirs something in our hearts. We love footprints in the sand because it's like, hey, when life gets hard, God carries me. Wonderful, and, and there's a truth to that. But there are a lot of times we come along dragging and kicking and screaming as he wants to lead us. And there are times like when you're going on a long hike with your kids. Ever been there before? On a long walk with your kids. And what do they want to do? I'm tired. I want to sit down. I'm tired. And so they drop it right on the ground. And I believe there are some of us who get burdened and God stirs our heart and we pray and we trust him. But then when he wants us to act, we go, I'm tired. I got too many things going on, God. I can't do this. And we plop down on our backside and do nothing. And he shakes his head. In his compassion and love, he goes, I've got so much more for you than sitting on your backside. You know, Dorothy Sayers talks about a sloth. I'm sure you guys have all seen a sloth before, right? You know what they are? They move very slowly. I've seen them in their natural habitat down in Amazon. They're, they're actually fun to watch, but they move slow. And then we've taken the word sloth to, to mean something for us in the American language. And she defines it this way, that sloth is that which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing that it would die for. And I believe there is a thing called the subtle Christian sloth. That while we should be burdened and we should care and we should act, we don't. Because we let nothing move us. And we sing the old hymn, I shall not be moved. And we mean it in a way of I'm not doing anything. Because sitting here in my backside in the sand, that's pretty comfortable. Until the sand starts getting into places we're not so comfortable with and starts irritating us, and we begin to believe there's got to be something more than sitting in the sand. The sloth merely says this, whatever, whatever. How many of you have used that word before with somebody, and they, they bring something to you, and it's like, whatever. That's like the greatest word of I don't care, get out of my face, whatever. So the usual face we put on sloths is being lazy. But I want you to consider other faces of the sloth, like there's the face of tolerance, which leads us to accept how we are without making any change. And we tolerate living the way we're living right now as Christians and not doing anything great for him, but we can tolerate that. That is slothfulness when we sit in our own tolerance. It can also look like apathy. Soren Kierkegaard once declared, let others complain that the age is wicked. My complaint is that it's wretched for it lacks passion. Some of us are just, we don't care. We have no passion in our heart that burns in our gut. 
For others, it's procrastination. Well, I'll do it someday. God's stirring my heart, but I'll do it someday when I'm more financially solid or I got more Bible classes under my belt or whenever. Procrastination. Others, it's the face of activity, which is kind of the ironic side for a sloth, but it's basically this. I'm too busy to do anything about it. And that is the voice of today's people, isn't it? I'm too busy. If you ask me to serve somewhere or do something, I'm too busy. I got way too much going on. Yeah, you do, but how eternal, how lasting, how much does that matter? When you stand before God someday, how much does half the stuff that we do matter? I'm too busy. For others, it's the sloth of circumstance, where it's easy to exaggerate the power of our own circumstances that we're in and allowing those circumstances to dictate our lives rather than recognizing that God can work with us right in the midst of those circumstances. So what do we do? What do we do when we don't know what to do? What do we do when we can't take it anymore? What do we do? First, let that thing touch our heart in a deep way. Secondly, we cry about it. Then we pray. And third, we get up and we do something about it. So as we go into this season, I'm going to pray over us an old Franciscan blessing prayer. Because I believe this is something that God wants to do, and not just my heart, because, man, I'm, you maybe can't tell, I'm a little bit passionate about this series. But I hope we all become passionate about a good work God wants to do in us. That's not just for the Nehemiahs and the Davids and all the Bible people. It's still going on right now, because as long as God's mission's at work, he's looking for people to work it. It's for you. So close your eyes as I pray this prayer over you. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, at half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. And may God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, for freedom, and for peace. And may God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, and war, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. In Jesus' name. Amen.